This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. It's a beautiful morning. Good morning, Radio Land. This is Malcolm White and Carol Bucket. And you have dialed to Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. So glad you joined us this morning. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Malcolm. How are you? All is well. And you? I'm great. And we are still socially distant. I know uh, you are still in your basement. Am I right? That's correct. In the basement. And I am in my closet. And Java is the only one back at the studio. I know. Well, at least we have Skype that keeps us connected and other technologies. So we are happy to to come to you uh, on statewide radio on MPB Think Radio. What'd you What'd you do for the weekend, Carol? Well, as usual, I did spend some time fishing, but it was a beautiful weekend. You know, yes. just a lot of hanging out. How about you? Yeah, some of that, a lot of the grandchildren, but also went to the farmer's market uh, yesterday uh, down Good. at the fairgrounds, and, and I got some uh, some squash and tomatoes uh, and some butter beans, and I cooked all of that, and uh, we had that uh, Saturday night with a nice slab of grilled fish, uh, but also went down to the coast last week, earlier in the week, stopped on a couple of my favorite roadside vegetable vendors and the tomatoes just aren't quite there yet plenty of squash plenty of squash but tomatoes just not there so i cooked a a dish that i love uh, of squash and spaghetti and uh, i use in this case i use those uh yellow and uh crookneck squash i'm sorry the yellow and green crooknecks i think they have a name but they're really good i cooked them with some onions and garlic and man i threw the spaghetti in there and it was righteous Oh, it sounds righteous. You got any leftovers? I did, but I ate them all. Uh, that well, was last night. I've had good tomato luck. I brought, I bought tomatoes. This is like my third go around down at the old farmer's market from Brenda Langham. And I must say they were some fine tomatoes. Uh, we've been buying like eight every other day. We're going through a lot of tomatoes. Tomato yeah. pie, tomato gravy, uh, tomato toast in the morning. I did a, a cream spinach stuffed tomato. A tomato, yes, cream spinach stuffed tomato. Yeah, yeah I saw that on Facebook. You yeah. had some cheese on top of it and you toasted it. Yeah, it, it was it was great. Yeah, you know, we're just having a big tomato fest. Yeah. Um, I also yeah. made a peach pie over the weekend. I saw that. Very handsome. Yeah, you know. Tell us about Simpson. it. Well, I used uh, one of Sarah Foster's recipes, and I know you know Sarah Foster. She yeah. actually went to Ole Miss and was the one responsible for Ron Shapiro coming to Oxford many, many years ago. And we um, thank her for that. And we thank thank her for that. But she has had Foster's Kitchen in Chapel Hill for many years. Um, I first met her when she was an assistant to Martha Stewart, but she's got three or four books. And in her first book, she has this peach pie recipe. And what I love it, love about it is that 
you know, you don't really mess up the peaches. I mean, you don't bake them. I mean, you just have them in all of their goodness. Yeah. And it's a it's a uh, cream cheese type crust. Hmm. And, um, you know, you just put the fresh peaches in and then top it with whipped cream. And it's delicious. In fact, it's so delicious. I've eaten it for breakfast for the past two mornings. <laughs> Not a thing wrong with that. I, I picked up some peaches at the farmer's market also. So, yeah, it's it's really a great time of year. And we've been blessed with uh, relatively cool weather. Uh, but a lot of squash, a lot of tomatoes, a lot of peaches. Uh, I also bought butter beans uh, and made it. Have you had peas or beans yet? I've had lady peas. I've had um, butter beans. You know, I mean, we could do a whole show on peas and beans. Yeah, As somebody, we should. Yeah, somebody gave me uh, a big pile of uh, wax beans, and I sat on mm. the porch and uh, snapped at them. And, you know, I hadn't done that in many years, and there was just something really uh, relaxing and something that connected me to the feeling of sitting on my grandmother's porch and and doing that um yeah yeah that's a beautiful how, thing how's your garden going my garden's good uh most of the plants are up uh they're they're not huge as i said i planted it late i've got uh cucumber two types of uh, squash i've got acorn and another large squash and i planted those because we like to make soup out of those squashes uh, i've also got some tomatoes i've got creoles and i've also got uh, little sweet uh, salad uh, tomatoes, and some in buckets, some in the ground. And then I've got peppers, and I've also got, I've, I planted some uh, marigolds and some zinnias around the edges. So I don't know, we'll see. Uh, I'll report out as it, as it comes along. Hey, what's the update on Cooking and Coping Facebook page? What's, what's been going on well, there? It, it's been really, uh, really exciting. We're up to now 813 members. I think that's about 50 people last week. So there are more and more posts and I'm so surprised by the creativity that's out there. And um, we have somebody now from Taiwan. I noticed a couple of people from Arizona, but you know, most of them are from around this mm -hmm. area. But I, I, I've taken to actually copying the pictures, you know, people will post these wonderful pictures of their food. And I found that you can click and save them to your own photos. And um, I'm going to have quite a gallery because it gives me ideas for how to plate things. You know, oh, I, okay. I know how to cook things sometime or most time, but there's just some wonderful stuff, wonderful creativity going on there. Yeah. It's really been fun watching people, uh, show off their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and uh, different plates, and, and such. Even I, I, in its humbleness. I mean, even a peanut yeah, yeah, jelly yeah. sandwich. I, I saw you had a beautiful egg sandwich or egg toast on the other morning. Fried egg sandwich. with Fried egg food. sandwich, yes. And uh, also uh, had a Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, a lot of people had opinions about fried egg sandwiches and what condiment to put on it some people use mayonnaise some people use ketchup some people use hot sauce some people use mustard 
So that was that was a lot of fun. I mean, it got people jazzed up about the humble egg sandwich. All right, we're going to take a break and uh, get right to our guests. We're excited today. Um, when we come back, we're going to welcome culinary historian and author Adrian Miller to the show. Uh, Adrian's work focuses on African-American experience around food. And with Juneteenth coming up, June 19th, uh, we'll have plenty to talk about, so we encourage you to stay tuned. Also, we want to hear about what's happening in your kitchen and your table. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or we would gladly receive your emails at food at mpbonline.org. Carol and I will be right back with Adrian Miller. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. Hey, Bobby, why do you like soul food? Because it makes me happy. Pass the peas like you used to say. Pass the peas like you used to say. You are tuned to Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White with Carol Puckett. This is the show all about the culture of peas, cornbread, and southern flavor. Good morning, Carol. How are you? Good morning, Malcolm. I am really excited this morning because I get to introduce our next guest, Adrian Miller. What's going on? Good to be with you. Yeah. Hey, Adrian. Adrian is coming to us from Denver, Colorado, where I'm sure that it's a lot cooler. And uh, by way of introduction... The only thing people really need to know about Adrian Miller is he is known as the soul food scholar who is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adrian, it's really good to be with you. Uh, I guess we met, it's been quite a while now, uh, through Southern Foodways Alliance, where we served on the board together for about six years. That's right. Yes, that's our connection. And uh, Malcolm is a member of that group, and I think you've met him along the way, too. Yeah, I I still remember his presentation on pressed sandwiches. (laughs) The ironing board pressed po' boy. Yep. And for our our listeners, Malcolm was invited to do a very academic lecture on pressed po' boys, and he stood on the stage in front of several (laughs) hundred... Uh, people, many of whom were academicians and researchers like Adrian, and with an ironing board and literally pressed the po'boys on stage. But it was memorable. I was using uh, Robert St. John's West Indies salad uh, as as the ingredients for my po'boy. So we made a Ah. West Indies crab uh, pressed po'boy for everybody. Well, uh, Adrian, about that time you were you were researching your first book, and um, I believe you had just finished a stint at the Clinton White House, 
and you were in politics in Colorado, and, and now you're in the politics of food. Yeah. So, yeah, I just uh, finished working for President Clinton on something called the Initiative for One America, which was an outgrowth of his initiative on race. And it was really all about racial, ethnic and religious reconciliation. Um, but at that point in my life, I wanted to be the senator from Colorado. So I was trying to, yeah, I know, long time ago. And uh, so I was trying to get back to Colorado, and I did, and I worked at a think tank. But in the interim, um, you know, I had this kind of chance encounter with John Edgerton's book, Soul, uh, Southern Food at Home on the Road in History, and that launched this kind of secondary career in, in food. Yeah, I love that, that you pointed out in your book, Soul Food, that it was Edgerton's sort of uh, challenge to someone. And this someone ended up being you to write this history of soul food. And uh, I think John influenced a lot of us in that way. Yeah. And I have to tell you, Malcolm, I did not think it would be me because seriously, I thought I was going to have a life in politics. But he wrote that the tribute to black achievement and cookery had yet to be written. And uh, when I picked the book up, it had already been out for about 10 years. So I just thought somebody had done it. And I I emailed him cold and asked him, and he said, you know, people have addressed parts of the story, but nobody's taken on the whole thing. Well, you did uh, it magnificently, sir. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I had had very little qualifications except for eating a lot of soul food. Well, you're known as an impeccable researcher. Uh, So was that in your DNA before you started working on the book, or was that a discovery about yourself? Yeah, well, you know, I've always been a straight-up nerd for a long time, but um, <laughs> my professional training was I was a lawyer, actually, before I went to the White House. So I think the rigors of, of being a lawyer, uh, doing legal scholarship and uh, researching for briefs and things kind of trained me in a way that I had not expected. Uh, so, yeah, that, that prepped me for uh, taking this, this idea of, of food scholarship more seriously. And how did you do your research? I mean, a lot of what you what you did has never been put in the form that you put it in. Yeah. So the the main thing I did was first I read um, the the oral history interviews of formerly enslaved people that were done in the 1930s under the Federal Writers Project. So that was about three thousand interviews, and so I lo- I read all of those, and then I I looked for all references for food. Um, then thanks to the internet, there are all kinds of companies that are digitizing old newspapers and old books and pamphlets and things, sometimes going all the way back to the 1600s. So I read thousands of those. And the trick there was just trying to understand how they talked about food in their time and how they described cooks. Um, read about 500 cookbooks, um, not all soul food, but, uh, other cookbooks just to put soul food in context. And then uh, talk to hundreds of people about what they thought soul food is now, what it was, where it's going. And then because I care about my research so deeply, I decided to eat my way through the country. So I went to 150 soul food restaurants in 35 cities in 15 states. Yeah, and you came to Mississippi several times because in your book I see references to Indianola and Greenwood and Jackson. You went to Bullies. You, You traveled all throughout Mississippi. Yes, yes. And, and a lot of that was just uh, bootstrapping my trips to uh, the SFA conference, uh, the symposium. So usually yeah. I just stuck around there and tried to check out the scene. So tell us, tell us, are the terms soul food and southern food interchangeable? 
I don't think so. I think they overlap, but I think soul food is something a little bit different. Now, I understand in the South, uh, the differences between maybe Southern and soul are so blurred that they're almost negligible. In fact, one, one of the things that surprised me, being someone who uh, was born outside of the South, was to see how little the term soul food was used. Um, I just found people calling it home cooking or country cooking or just dinner. Um, but uh, I think that soul food is um, under the rubric of Southern food as the mother regional cuisine. Uh, but to me, soul food is really more about the food that uh, African-Americans took outside the South during the Great Migration when they settled in other places. Um, when they got to the new places, they tried to rec recreate home as much as they could. So the expansive kind of Southern menu of vegetables and other things got really condensed because fewer of those things were available outside the South. And then they started looking at what their neighbors were eating and started experimenting and substituting and other things. So I think soul food is a little bit different. And Southern food, but there's a ton of overlap in terms of ingredients, techniques, and traditions. And speaking of the Great Migration, you know, most people know that over six million African Americans uh, fled the Deep South, the rural Deep South, and moved to the Northeast, Midwest, and West, taking that cooking tradition, as you said, with them. Do you think there is a bit of a return from the from, from the Great Migration? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, It's been interesting. The last, uh, say, five to ten years, uh, there have been a lot of articles about, especially older African Americans, uh, going back to the South. Uh, my own father, who grew up in Helena, Arkansas, has uh, talked about going back to the South uh, after spending, you know, 50 years plus yeah. in Denver. Um, and then also in the younger um, generation of African Americans, I think uh, many see more economic opportunity in the South. Uh, especially in a place like Atlanta. So, yeah, there's definitely a, a bit of a reverse migration going on. Hmm. So we are, uh, this week, we'll be celebrating uh, Freedom Day, Juneteenth. I wonder if you tell our listeners sort of your perspective on Jubilee Day on Juneteenth and why we celebrate it in this country. Yeah, so Juneteenth, for those who don't know, is uh, commemorating the arrival of federal troops in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865, to announce to the uh, enslaved African Americans that they were free. So a, few, a, few, a full two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. Um, so what's really interesting to me is how widespread Juneteenth is. Because uh, at that time, um, there were several um, different emancipation celebration traditions across the country based pegged to different dates. So there's some people who were celebrating in August because that was tied to the emancipation of enslaved people in the West Indies. And that was something that predated the Civil War. So that tradition uh, came on. There were some people who celebrated in late September, uh, commemorating when Lincoln announced that the Emancipation Proclamation was coming. And there were others who celebrate on January 1st because that's the date that the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. So it's been really interesting to see all of these other emancipation traditions go by the wayside, and Juneteenth gained so much momentum that now there are people advocating for Juneteenth to be a national holiday. Um, and it's just more proof of how great cheerleaders um, Texans are for their own culture. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that so, the truth? So what are the culinary celebrations around Juneteenth? So the Juneteenth Trinity by far is barbecue, red drink, and watermelon. And for those who don't know, when I say red drink, in, in African-American culture, red is a color and a flavor. So we don't get caught up in calling things cherry or strawberry or tropical punch or that it has hints of cranberry. It's just red. Uh, 
There is a generational shift happening, though. There are a lot of youngins that seem to like purple and blue. And as I wrote in my Soul Food book, I do believe the children are our future, that we should teach them well and let them lead the way, but not on uh, drinks because they're messing it up. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the, you know, the, the, the idea is to have red-colored foods. And um, I've been poking around. I think the most plausible explanation I found is that uh, the red just symbolizes the bloodshed by African-American ancestors and the constant struggle for freedom. Um, and in recent years, uh, red velvet cake and strawberry cake have kind of been added to that pantheon of acceptable red, red foods. But though, it's really about those three. Well, Adrian, what about the cool lickle? There's another deep dive. <laughs> yeah, you know, Malcolm, the cool lickle has just not caught on. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's tried, but, you know, people are just very resistant. And, and this, for those who haven't had the pleasure of experiencing a cool lickle, would be massive dill pickles soaked in mostly red Kool-Aid. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and it it makes an awful color, but you know, in in some places, uh, yeah, they look at cool lickles as vegetables. (laughs) Wow, I hope the federal government doesn't doesn't approve that like they did ketchup. That could be a real mess. I know. Would be cool lickles in every school cafeteria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Adrian, does barbecue have uh, a special significance for Juneteenth, like the red drink? Yeah, so uh, you know you are, you, you could argue what the, you could argue what's the red quality of barbecue, and I think you could bring the sauce in for there. But yeah, it's a it's the summer celebration food, um, and you know it's not the default choice because fried chicken could easily have been the default choice, but it's really barbecue that's synonymous with Juneteenth. And um, most of the time, we're thinking about East Texas barbecue, which does not get as much publicity as Central Texas these days. But the East Texas barbecue tradition is um, directly associated with enslaved African-Americans who were brought there from mostly West Tennessee. Uh, But it's a place where you have chopped sandwiches, uh, spare ribs, pork spare ribs. They have a a hot link tradition and also a beef sausage tradition. Um, And also just soul food sides associated with the barbecue. So that's what a lot of people think of when they think of kind of Juneteenth barbecue. But um, there are some pockets of Texas where goat is actually the, the preeminent uh, dish. It's not as widely popular as the others, but yeah, a barbecue goat. Adrian, were you on the SFA barbecue uh, Texas trip? I was on the yeah that was, I was on the very first one in two thousand two, um, yeah. and that was my first SFA event. Yeah, I don't know if I I can't remember if I was on the two thousand two, but anyway, I did take one of those trips, and it was so enlightening. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, because uh, before that, my deepest thought about barbecue was like, oh, this is really good. Uh, <laughs> so I never really put barbecue in any kind of social, historical, political context. And so, uh, again, being a nerd, man, that was just awesome to, to wed that with food. Those are three of the happiest days of my life. So was that your first event with Southern Foodways Alliance? Yeah, very first and when was your first trip to Oxford, Mississippi to attend the symposium? Oh, that following fall. So I was sold after I spent that time in in June. I went to the next symposium. So, Adrian, I'm going to back up just a little bit and talk about the red drink. Is this uh, traditionally an alcoholic drink or a non-alcoholic drink? Oh, traditionally it's been a non-alcoholic drink. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so there, there are a couple of red drinks. Uh, so I think red Kool-Aid is a nod to a couple of red drinks that come across the Atlantic during the slave trade. And you've probably had them, but just didn't know it. So the first one is cola. And you're probably saying, what are you talking about, man? Colas are brown. Well, cola nuts are native to West Africa, and there are two types, really. There's a whitish one, and there's a reddish one. And so a hospitality drink in a lot of West African societies is to create a red cola nut tea. So they would get water, drop the nuts in there, let it color it, to, uh, and then they would add sweeten it to taste. Um, and that's the same formula as Kool-Aid. Um, another one is hibiscus drink. So hibiscus is native to West Africa. Uh, the flower petals are used to make a drink, much the same way that you would use the cola nuts. Um, that comes across the Atlantic, takes root in Jamaica, where it's called sorrel, and then it spread itself around Latin America. And so if you go to a taqueria these days and get agua de Jamaica, Jamaica water, you're just, you're just drinking a riff off that West African drink. Wow. So, uh, it, yeah, in the American context, so the drinks were... Um, Red lemonade, so they would get lemonade and add, you know, sumac or some, you know, some kind of berries or something, and then it became red soda water, and then Kool Aid are kind of the the constituent parts of red drink. Fascinating. I think so too. Yeah, <laughs> and again, uh, your book Soul Food, uh, the surprising story of an American uh, cuisine, has really helped a lot of us who are interested in that cuisine but don't know the history to understand the backstory and 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 all of the details of, of a cuisine that maybe we've taken for granted. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, are soul food restaurants you know proliferating? I mean, are are we seeing uh, more and more of them or is it a tradition that you know that that's dying out? Yeah, so um, the tradition outside the South is one that I thought was in decline. Um, and this was pre-pandemic, so who knows what it's like now. It's going to be interesting to check in with people in, in a few months. Um, and I think part of that is just the reputation that soul food has as being unhealthy. Um, if restaurants didn't adjust to providing healthier options, I think they got fewer customers. Uh, another challenge is a lot of the black neighborhoods where these restaurants are are gentrifying. So the neighborhood joint for African-Americans is now a destination restaurant with people who have moved to the suburbs or other parts of town. So if they don't make an effort to support these restaurants, you know, the, the new neighbors or their new customers may not be feeling their cuisine. And I think the other critical aspect is um, a lot of these places were started in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the owners are either dying or retiring and wanting to pass the business off. And in a lot of cases, the kids are not really interested in carrying on that business. So that's a lot of other kinds. So I'm seeing a rise in, in food trucks and kind of, you know, these improvised uh, restaurants. But the brick-and-mortar locations, I think, are in decline. One of the things that really hit me uh, in, in the soul food book is the fact that uh, the, a lot of the soul food restaurants, especially the neighborhood restaurants, are priced to serve the people in those neighborhoods. And there's not a lot of margin for being able to raise prices. And we, we've seen this. One of our guests, Gino Lee, who owns the Big Apple Inn in oh, Jackson yeah. with the uh, pig ear sandwiches, you know, pretty much said the same thing. I mean, there's only so far you can go. Yeah, you know, and I, I've been in arguments with other food writers about this because um, they're, you know, some food writers, not African-American, have been saying to me, well, they just should they should just raise their prices. 
And I was like, that is not understanding their clientele. I mean, I've been in restaurants which I thought had very reasonable prices. And this is coming from someone who's had the perspective of traveling around the country. And I've heard the customers complaining about how high the prices are. Um, I was in a barbecue joint in Milwaukee. And uh, the a slab, the, the ribs were, I think a slab was 14 bucks, And people were complaining about that. I was like, I've been in places <laughs> where they're charging 30 <laughs> Yeah. Right. You know? Um, so. All right. We're going to take a break. Adrian, you and Carol stick around. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about current trends in soul food and hopefully dispelling the myth that soul food is inherently unhealthy. We hope that you'll stay tuned. And if you have a question or comment for Adrian Miller, historian uh, and culinary author, please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring We'd love to hear from you. If you want to join the conversation, this is a show all about Southern culture and the flavors they are in, and we'd love to hear from you. Adrian, Carol, and I will be right back after this break. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. You are tuned to Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White with Carol Puckett and our very special guest, food historian uh, and and writer, Mr. Adrian Miller. Thank you, Adrian, for being with us. We're glad you are here. So am I. Before we, yeah, man, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the times in which we live and the origins of soul food. I think you once said that black folks and white folks uh, in America are eating the same food, but we're not eating it together. Can you talk about sort of these times in which we live and the role of, of foods like soul food? Yeah, so that was one of the biggest surprises in my research because I had bought this narrative that soul food was the master's leftovers, garbage, unwanted food, especially created for African Americans. Um, but then that just didn't show up. It's really more about class and place than race. Um, which again speaks to race because people are eating these foods separately. But a, a lot of people of the same socioeconomic class were eating the same food. So in the times we have today, we still have, uh, you know, the, the tragic problem of segregation. In fact, there's been a lot of evidence that we are resegregating as a society after all the, you know, gains we had made on integration and at least striving for that. So um, I believe that food, especially soul food, because it's delicious can be a place where we can, uh, can be a tool for us to come together. Because um, uh, I'm very interested in having us sit down and understand each other and understand our differences and try to create and build a shared future. And there are just fewer and fewer spaces in our society to do that now. I mean, the only ones I can think of now are um, spaces where you have food together, places where you worship. Um, you know, those are just, there are just fewer spaces. 
I'll speak to the the concept of the welcome table, which is traditionally thought of as an African American table, but you had some pretty good ideas for that in a recent article I read. Well, yeah, I think the I think one of our challenges, just one, we have a lot, um, is that we really don't understand each other. Um, to use David Shipler's term, we're a nation of, of familiar strangers. And um, I think we need to create spaces in our lives where we invite people with whom we disagree to come to a space where we just talk and hear each other and try to listen and be mentally and emotionally prepared to hear some whack stuff come out of that other person's mouth, um, but to just try to start to understand each other. And my hope is, is that by talking to each other, that we can, uh, again, build a shared future. But part of it is going to be a lot of work, first of all, to create a safe space where people feel like they're free to express what's really on their mind. And then we have to take, do, do something with that. But then also we have to understand there may be just points where we just don't agree. And I, I call it, uh, we have to hold the tension of that disagreement, but understand the humanity of that person who, with whom I'm talking and, um, you know, just continue to, re- to talk and build relationship. We got a caller on the line. Chico from Oxford, Mississippi is calling in. What's up, Chico? Good morning, y'all. I want to tell Adrian, thank you very much for clearing that up on the red drink. <laughs> I've, I've wondered that for years. I, I told my redheaded woman just last night that I've got to get some Big Red for Juneteenth. You know Big Red, the soft drink? Oh, yeah, man. You're doing it legit. That's the drink. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I was invited to a Juneteenth um, event in Oxford uh, back in the 90s, I asked, well, can I bring anything? And the lady said, well, you can bring some big red. And me being ignorant, I thought she meant the chewing gum. <laughs> and I asked, the chewing gum? And she said, no, the drink. And uh, so I went to Larson's Big Star and got some Big Red and showed up. And I wasn't the only person that showed up with Big Red. And every oh, year that since then... That warms my heart. Oh, well, every year on, since then on Juneteenth, I've gone to Big Star. Actually, I've learned that you need to go on the 18th if you're not going to be sold out. And got some Big Red. <laughs> and I got to tell you, though, I, I always buy it, but I always give it away because it is horrible. what do you think about that adrian i like big red i i I wrote in my book i I did a tasting notes for it i said it had hints of cotton candy (laughs) stand your ground (laughs) chico thanks for listening thanks for calling in we always love hearing from from oxford and our listeners there uh i wonder adrian if we could talk a little bit about uh, some of the current soul food trends uh that are going on out there from um, the vegan soul food, the down-home healthy, the upscale soul fusion, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so uh, a lot of creativity right now in soul food. So, of course, you have the traditional uh, soul food, um, what most people think of, you know, the dishes with pork in it, fried chicken, catfish, all that kind of stuff. Um, But you had, uh, starting in the 80s, there was a move to have healthier options, and I think that was a reflection of just the health outcomes with African Americans. So uh, people started using smoked turkey, uh, to season vegetables instead of pork, or they didn't use uh, meat at all and used more spices. Um, you know, the transition to say vegetable oils instead of butter uh, uh, and lard, that kind of thing. Uh, then you've got vegan, um, which is no dairy products, no animal products at all. 
And um, a lot of people think of that as an oxymoron. But actually, if you look at what enslaved people were eating during that time, um, it was pretty close to what we call vegan today. It was seasonal vegetables, uh, mainly um, water to drink. And it was really only on the weekends and special occasions that African-Americans got access to more of the ingredients to, to make the soul food that we think of today, like white flour, white sugar, the glorious cakes, uh, fried chicken, all that stuff was really um, special occasion food. Um, and then you've got kind of what I call um, fusion, where you see soul food being mixed up with other cuisines. So uh, Latinx uh, example, there's a place called the Blacksican in Atlanta. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, where this guy, uh, he's making things like collard green quesadillas, you know, that kind of thing. Um, another trend is soul food egg rolls. So imagine an egg roll filled with uh, pureed candy jams, collard greens, uh, macaroni and cheese, that kind of thing you see a lot. Um, I haven't seen a lot of molecular gastronomy soul food, so I'm still waiting for someone to create <laughs> a dish like with a chitlin foam, uh, <laughs> sweet potato spheres with a collard green dust. I'm just waiting to see that. What about catfish moose? Oh, yeah. I've seen that. <laughs> All right. I believe we got another caller on the line. So, uh-oh. Yeah. We had a fellow from Biloxi, but he got impatient. Okay. And then the upscale. Sorry. I forgot one. The upscale yeah. is just kind of taking these traditional forms and just, uh, you know, creating elevated presentations. So that catfish moose is certainly something you would see using heirloom vegetables, heritage meats, you know, that kind of stuff, adding exotic spices. You see that. Not as much, but you do see it. Uh, I want to go back to something we were talking about, about in the in the second seg segment. You were talking about the ingredients that uh, make up soul food and how during the Great Migration, a lot of the ingredients went north and then they came south. What do you consider the basic ingredients of soul food? Uh, so, yeah, when I the, and this is the way I wrote my book. So I, I created a, kind of a representative meal. So uh, so for entrees, I would say like fried chicken, either chicken, either fried or smothered. Uh, you can certainly say pork chops, um, some kind of fish, usually catfish, chitlins, which pig intestines, not for everybody. Uh, a great example of kind of this shortened menu is greens. So in soul food, typically the popular greens are collard, mustard, turnip, kale and cabbage. So I tell people, if you discovered kale in the last five to ten years, welcome to the party. We've been eating it for about 300. <laughs> uh, you've got beans. Like a black IP is actually a bean. So you've got black IPs, peas, black beans, pinto beans, very popular. Uh, sweet potatoes, we call them yams, the dark-fleshed ones. Um, and then macaroni and cheese as an example of something brought into the cuisine from another culture. Uh, and then cornmeal to make breads. And I, we talked about red drink, hot sauce. And uh, then the desserts to me are pound cake, banana pudding, sweet potato pie, and peach cobbler. And I would add okra to that list. I didn't write about okra in my book, but I would add okra as one of the key ingredients of soul food. The reason I didn't include it in my book is I thought I wanted to create a meal that you could have anywhere in the world if you had soul food. And my experience is it's uncommon to get okra outside of the South. But that's even changing because now fried okra, you know, breaded in cornmeal and fried, is now becoming bar food. So you're seeing that in a lot more places now. But that steamed or boiled okra, you really don't see that much outside the South. Um, Adrian, speaking of okra, there was a quote in your book that I absolutely love so much I wrote down. And you said, pinning down soul food's origins 
has been as slippery as stewed okra. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a good line. I forgot I wrote hey. that. Yeah. yeah. Somebody's I mean, it really, it. it really evokes slippery. You just say just how slippery it was. Yeah, and that's I, actually that's for the most people who don't like okra. That's why they don't like it. They just don't like the slime. Right. Um, Embrace like the slime, it. I say. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Come right back with uh, Adrian Miller. It'll be our last break of the show. We appreciate everyone tuning in. This is Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. We're going to talk about soul food. We're going to talk about hot sauce and just about anything that Adrian and Carol want to talk about. We'll be right back on Deep South Dining. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Bobby, why do you like soul food? Because it makes me happy. And we are happy you are tuned to Deep South Dining on MPB Think Radio. Malcolm White with Carol Puckett and our very special guest today, Adrian Miller. Carol, bring Adrian back into the scene. Well, Adrian is coming to us from Denver, Colorado, and we've been talking about his book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. But he also has a book that we haven't talked about today, which is The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African Americans who have fed our first families from the Washington's to the Obamas, and I think that's a whole nother show. And then we want to get to the book you're working on now called Black Smoke. Yeah, so uh, thanks for a, a shout out for my books. Um, th- this Black Smoke book was really um, spawned by the, the lack of media representation for African-American barbecuers. Um, if, you, if you notice magazines, TV shows, whatever, I mean, there's just very few African-Americans um, who are depicted. And so I wanted to understand why, because I know of the rich heritage of barbecue and African-American culture. And I know that for two centuries, African-Americans were the standard bearers for excellent barbecue. Um, but that all starts to change towards the end of the 20th century uh, to the point now where we have a, a lack of representation. So I just wanted to show people that, hey, if you're going to talk about barbecue in the United States, you have to include African-Americans. Right. And so when will the book come out? So it's scheduled to come out uh, spring of 2021. So I'm wrapping up the editing phase. And so, yeah, it's about, we're about a year away. Okay. Well, I'm going to get Java to uh, sign a contract that you'll come back and <laughs> talk, about, <laughs> talk about that book. I'll be happy to. Yeah, because this is, this is definitely the time for it. Uh, you, you're, you talk about... Uh, I read an article that was in the Huffington Post, I guess last week that you wrote, about the uh, strange and difficult times we're in and how food sometimes is used uh, in, ra- you know, in race issues. Uh, you, you use the word food is weaponized. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so um, what we see is, uh, especially in the late 1800s, we start to see these, and, and stereotypes about African Americans had existed before this time, but we really see a ramping up of stereotypes about African Americans associated with food. And so the idea was, even though whites were eating the same foods, um, it was made to seem like African Americans were childlike or even beast-like for the way that they loved certain foods and ate them. And so that's where the painful stereotypes of fried chicken, watermelon, uh, and it even extended to things like catfish and barbecue, really start to proliferate. And it was really just a propaganda uh, campaign to say, hey, you just gave all these people political rights. Um, they really don't deserve them. And here's why. And we just see a lot of momentum building on that to the point now today where I have African-American friends who are very hesitant to eat certain foods with white people around. I mean, that's how much pain has been carried really? with these stigmas. Yeah. You know, Adrian, when I was reading that piece, which was a, a wonderful piece that you uh, you wrote in the Huffington Post, June 11th edition. And you made this analogy about what you just talked about, people being embarrassed to eat certain foods, uh, certain foods being uh, associated with certain sort of stigmas. I thought about blues, and, and I've thought about how some, I have noticed in my career, some African Americans really want to move past the blues, and they really don't want to be associated with the blues because it is downtrodden and it reflects a negative past. Have you ever noticed that correlation? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, definitely. Um, and you see really in the set in the seventies when a lot of the blues artists themselves were saying, Hey, I'm playing in front of a bunch of white people. Um, and they really didn't get much love from black press and other, uh, you know, other aspects of black culture. And I would say the same thing happened with soul food. Um, a lot of African-American chefs, especially in the fine dining context, did not want to be associated with soul food. And uh, I, fortunately, I think that's changing. You're starting to see more and more chefs. If they're not outright celebrating soul food, they're making it part of their repertoire, which is what I always wanted. Because I just said, look, how many French chefs do you know who say, don't associate me with rustic uh, French cooking? They never say that, right? It's just part of their repertoire. And they go ahead and cook whatever they want to. And I wanted the same thing for soul food. But one thing I did notice real quick is that um, so many aspects of African-American culture have gone worldwide and have been celebrated. The way we dress, entertain, speak, wear clothes, whatever, and soul food hasn't. And I think it's because it lacks cheerleaders. Right. Um, Adrian, in the Huffington Post article, you, you had some things that we can do to help the black community and to, uh, you know, be to move forward uh, in these times after the pandemic. Can you share some of those with us? Sure, yeah. I was uh, speaking mainly in the food space, but I think this could apply to any um, black business or people you want to support. One is to just, you know, put your dollars uh, in support of those entrepreneurs and help them stay open um, and do their thing. Um, another thing is to, uh, and this doesn't cost anything, but actually follow people on sam uh, social media uh, like them, amplify what they're saying if you agree with what they're saying and like what they're saying. And you can even put them on mute. But for a lot of things today, social media is the corner, the coin of the realm and often gives you leverage to do other things. Um, and then, you know, if there's somebody, an entrepreneur, someone, uh, maybe you don't have the dollars, but you have a talent that you could lend. Um, I can't tell you how many professionals have reached out to me, lawyers, graphic designers, web designers, um, saying, hey, I want to give some pro bono work uh, for a black entrepreneur. I mean, that is hugely meaningful because a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the food space, 
uh, often come into this uh, cash-strapped. And there are historical reasons for that as well. We know that African-American entrepreneurs lack the access to capital and private investment that other entrepreneurs do. Well, man, we appreciate you joining us today, Adrian, and it's been enlightening and uh, it's been entertaining and it's been uh, informative. And thank you so much. We'll have you back when Black Black Smoke comes out and we will visit again about that. Be safe and thanks again for your insight and for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Stink Radio. We are funded by generous contributions from folks just like you. Our show is produced by the one and only Java Chapman, for my co-host Carol Puckett, and our really great guest, Adrian Miller today. I'm Malcolm White, and we thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey and Southern Remedy at 11 a.m. Please join us each and every Monday at 9 a.m. for Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio.